Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. It's a beautiful day in Kansas City. We're enjoying the sunshine. Spring, I think, has finally sprung for us. I'm in the beautiful Spurgeon Library, just enjoying the aura, the vibe of the man, the myth, the legend, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. I'm trying to avoid um, all of the the doom and gloom um, as we record this episode. We're kind of reaching peak um, election uh, hand wringing, and so every headline I look at is is uh, somebody's crisis. <laughs> what do you do, uh, dear listener? Every time you read the headlines or you look at social media, and you just feel bombarded by crisis, right? The the cultural landscape is chaotic. It's tumultuous. Are you ever tempted to think like God has just kind of handed us over to our own mess? Like, here you go. All right, you've you've made this uh, mess. Now go lie in it. What is God doing in the midst of all of this sin and brokenness? Well, today I'm talking with Jonathan Dodson. Jonathan has written a new book with InterVarsity Press called Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. Jonathan is the founding pastor of City Life Church in Austin, Texas, and founder of Gospel-Centered Discipleship. He's author of a few books, including The Unbelievable Gospel and Here in Spirit. And he was also one of the very first guests. I was just uh, reminiscing with him about this uh, offline. Uh, He was one of the very first guests of the For the Church podcast, all the way back in episode 16, uh, where we talked about mission and evangelism in a post-Christian context. And I believe he's the first guest to make a return visit. He's the first return visit. Uh, shy of, uh, of episode 100. We're coming up, we're about, oh, 10, 18 episodes away from episode 100. And Jonathan's the first guy we've had back. So we're very glad to have him here to talk about his new book. Jonathan, uh, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Jared. It's, uh, it's a joy. Yeah. So the book is called Our Good Crisis. And it kind of threw me off a little bit at first. I, and I wondered kind of what you meant by it. Do you mean that the crisis is itself good or? that it's a crisis of the good. Why don't you explain the, the title and the premise for us? Well, I'm glad I threw you off. It's a, <laughs> it's a double entendre. So, yeah, yeah it, the idea is that um, there is a, a crisis of the good in our country and in our cultural moment. We're having trouble defining what's good. Uh, we have very polarized views of what's good. And so uh, there's... A proliferation of, you know, uh, injustices, evils, uh, crises. Um, and so we're definitely experiencing that in kind of an acute way. Um, and then at the same time, I think, you know, it's, a, it's an opti- optimistic moment for the church because uh, we of all people have a vision for the good. We have a vision for what um, <clears throat> society is supposed to be like, how humanity flourishes. And we get this, of course, from many places, but, you know, one of the, probably the best places is Jesus and his vision of human flourishing in the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, the attitude. So we have a, we're ripe for an opportunity to demonstrate the good in how we respond to all these crises, uh, in how we uh, cultivate virtue ourselves and in our communities and churches. So yeah, du- double meaning there. Uh, there's a crisis of the good, but we have an opportunity for us to make good out of the crisis that we're in. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really happy to see um, a book that kind of tracks with, um, the, you know, the Lord's kind of kingdom blueprint, you know, if you will, especially in the, in the Beatitudes, those kind of opening proclamations. Um, do you think that 
the kind of world we're looking at, and when I say we, you know, the, you know, um, in the West in particular mm-hmm. here in, in, in the United States, do you feel like we're getting closer to kind of the environment, the, the cultural, religious, political environment, uh, that Jesus himself entered into? Does that kind of enhance the relevancy of, of something like the Sermon on the Mount for us? Um, I know it's a tricky question. <laughs> I obviously we're not, you know, identical to the the you know world that Jesus walked in, but uh, yeah. just in terms of sort of like an ideological parallel, I just sense in so much of the the tribalism, the fracturing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, all of those sorts of things. I, I, you know, I wonder if you see any any kind of comparison there or not. Um, yeah, no, I think that I think that's a fair uh, a fair comparison to to a degree. You know, I mean, uh, there there was uh, Roman Roman you know uh, ideology, Greek ideology, Jewish ideology, all had very different uh, visions of the good. Um, Roman, you know, imperial cult uh, was driven by power. Um, the Hellenistic worldview was driven by Kind of the philosopher king uh, wisdom, uh, and then you you've got the Jews who hope in you know monotheistic religion and, and Yahweh and his his return to deliver them, and then Jesus comes along and subverts it all. <laughs> so I think uh, there's certainly parallels in terms of you know ideologies that are large and in, in, in conflict. Um, of course, today we're we're in a you know. Many people point to Charles Taylor. We're in a secular age, yeah. um, so it, it's different because uh, in Jesus' time, uh, religion was widely accepted and praised. In fact, if you were not religious, um, you were uh, <clears throat> seen as a social rebel, an atheist, you know, someone that was causing problems for society because you weren't honoring the gods. Where, in, in, in many respects, it's the opposite um, today. That you know, if you are devoted to God in a public way. Um, you're causing problems. Um, right. You're you're narrow. You're exclusive. You're bigoted. So <clears throat> I'd say there's similarities and dissimilarities, but uh, plenty of opportunity to lean into the beatitudes to kind of uh, engage the crisis that we're in. Yeah. So why the beatitudes? Each each uh, chapter kind of covers um, one of the one of the you know blessing declarations. There, what's the rationale behind choosing that section of the Sermon on the Mount to kind of track through? Um, I find them uh, c- compelling and flattening. You know, okay. <laughs> I, I, I find them, um, you know, inspiring to be a better Christian, to be someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Doesn't just kind of make it an occasional effort. Um, I find it inspiring to to be a person who is uh, not proud. Um, not uh, vain, uh, but poor in spirit. Uh, you know, these, these beatitudes are so stunning and so countercultural. And at the same time, they're so flattening. They're so impossible. Yeah. That, uh, I just find there's, because of that unique, uh, combination, it's like, it, it's the best recipe for spiritual formation. I mean, I need to come into, I need to come into contact with something that is, otherworldly that's so beautiful that's so morally robust so demanding and so at the same time inspiring what it could do for me what it what it could do for my community for my church for my world 
um, it's, it just drives you uh, to your to your knees to cry out for a, a help uh, to to have the character and virtue that Jesus gives us there um, that you cannot produce on your own. So I think for that reason, I think you know just the, the spiritual um, uh, density and um, the the, uh, the vision, the inspiring, coherent moral vision that Jesus has there. Uh, is just uh, inspiring and humbling all at once, which is something I need every day. Yeah, I mean, I just think of how how subversive so many, um, well, I mean, you know, even outside the Beatitudes, just in the entire sermon, you know, when I think of, to me, what's the most, uh, or what's the scariest, you know, portion of Scripture, <laughs> for me anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I go back to the Sermon on the Mount because, um, which I find fascinating because typically, I don't know if you, you know, perceive this or not, but, um, you know, the average person on the street who admires Jesus, you know, even people who don't, you know, they don't believe in him as, as, as savior, uh, you know, they don't believe he's God in, incarnate or anything like that. Um, but they admire Jesus. They think he's a good teacher, that sort of thing. If you ask just the average person, you know, what's something Jesus taught or what's something Jesus believed? Um, by and large, they're going to quote something. They won't know it's from the Sermon on the Mount, but they'll probably quote something that comes from the Sermon on the Mount. It is his mm-hmm. most, you know, it's the most famous text that people kind of know the little proof text from or the little the little slogans yeah. from. And and, yeah. and yet this most popular text to me is the most as you said flattening. It's it's uh you know every time I read it I'm instantly convicted. I'm instantly beginning to think of all the loopholes how this doesn't apply to me or <laughs> <laughs> how how other how you know it'd be great if other people followed that but it doesn't yeah. work you know it doesn't work for my situation kind of thing. <laughs> Just this yeah. morning, um, I, you know, I read the headline that the president at a rally last night, uh, explained that we cannot turn the other cheek, um, which is something that he said before. You don't, you, you don't turn the other cheek. Um, it's something that even one of the highest profile Christian, um, advisors to the president has, has said that there are places where you don't take that principle, turning the other cheek. So, you know, are there places where we can't take the Sermon on the Mount or is it not as, uh, as tidy as that for us? Um, are there places we can't take it? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, is there a, a way for us to say, well, it really only applies to these situations and, and we're going to kind of keep it cordoned off from these other areas of life. Yeah. Well, it's a kingdom sized vision. So if, it, if it's good enough for the kingdom, I think it's good enough for any place on earth. <laughs> okay. Well said, <laughs> well said. Uh, yeah, I mean, it it really does sort of subvert idolatry, is what it is. I mean, I'm you know the the um you know the things that we cherish or the things that we look to for our satisfaction or for our comfort or our protection. This uh, this sermon comes in and kind of just upends that, or or you know demands implicitly demands that we uh, renounce those things and and follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, what are some ways that, you know, that you've been challenged perhaps by the, uh, the Beatitudes, um, in, in your pastorate or just in your, in your daily walk? Uh, well, it's hard to get it, get out of the gate with it. You know, it's <laughs> blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, you know, Luke, uh, records that Beatitude as blessed are the poor, so there's some debate over what the meaning is. Some, yeah. you know, interpret it literally or at it, you know, as economically poor. Um, others interpret it attitudinally. It's, you know, a, a 
a spiritual poverty or, a, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm spiritually broken. Um, <clears throat> either one is uh, pretty demanding if you're, if you're not wealthy or uh, you struggle with pride at all. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I, I have hope, I have trouble getting past that one. In fact, it seems to be foundational for all of the Beatitudes. If you don't have that, um, it's very hard to be uh, righteous. It's very hard to show mercy to others, uh, to be a peacemaker, uh, because, um, if, you know, if, if you're not humble uh, before God, then um, you're looking to make a name for yourself. And uh, uh, making a name for ourselves, we're prone to you know, not show mercy, but to kind of look out for number one. Uh, not not make peace in relationships, but uh, try to be right, uh, get our point across. Um, you know, so this one is uh, particularly, you know, I mean, it's, honestly, it's one of my daily prayers. You know, Lord, uh, make me poor in spirit today. Uh, and I think <clears throat> the phrase has to do both with kind of uh, attitude and and to, you know, addresses economically poor. Um, the circumstantially poor, but if it, if it was, you know, restricted to, you know, circumstantially poor, then it wouldn't, the in spirit phrase wouldn't be added in Matthew. So it seems to be that if there's a combination there, this is, this is particularly for the poor, uh, but it's, but it's for all people. And, um, so the question becomes, how do, how do I become poor in spirit? You know, um, and I think wrestling through this text myself, um, I can't impose that. I can't uh, cultivate that in myself. I can't produce it, generate it. Um, and so I, I need something greater than myself, something greater than my aspirations, something greater than my gifts to um, to look up at and be, be stunned. Um, and at the same time, I need something more gracious than, than myself, uh, you know, so... I think we we find this in in God Himself that He is greater and more gracious than uh, anything, anyone, uh, any place, any vista that we might find. And so, you know, it's it's, it's true. You know, it kind of it's probably been overused. But when I went to the Grand Canyon, looked down, I mean, it just the vastness of it. I was humbled and thrilled all at once because I found something greater um, and more marvelous than myself. Uh, in a similar way, you know, getting before God and 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 taking in his character, sitting and soaking in the vistas of his glory and grace through his word and through prayer begins to produce in me uh, poverty of spirit, which leads to all these other virtues, you know. So I see that's the one that's that's the foundation one. That's the one I pray for every day. Um, that's that's the gateway beatitude, you know, to the, <laughs> the virtues, virtues of the kingdom. Right. Yeah. I mean, in in a sense, using your illustration, the beatitudes kind of strike me that way it's it, it it's sort of like looking into the vastness it's the grand canyon or the the um you know the uh, mount everest of the righteousness of god come to bear and yeah. staring into them you you can't help but feel small and yet at the same time as you said the the overwhelming grace of god coming to those who you know can't admit their spiritual poverty or can admit you know the bankruptcy of of their own righteousness or who are keenly in touch with their with their own need, you know, the you you just know so much your own need and then and then you just see blessed are blessed are blessed are and not only do you feel small but you also feel kind of in awe of the glory 
um, and the grace that's there. Okay, um, I want to get into the book a little bit. I want to key in right now on chapter four on meekness, which is something that I wrote a little bit about in my last book as well, because I think meekness is extremely underrated in in our world today. (laughs) This is the age, I think, of anti-meekness. And so I'm wondering if you could just help us understand what is meekness and what is it the antidote for? Yeah, I I would agree. Meekness is is hard to come by. it seems that uh, meekness is a character that exudes from a character trait that exudes from us because we have become poor in spirit. You know, so it's it's uh, through the process of staring at a great and gracious God that we 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 develop this uh, spiritual poverty that you know that then um, moves from kind of vertically out horizontally into our relationship. There's a meekness about that person. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I think of uh, people that I um, enjoy being around. Honestly, the people that I enjoy around are people that, that have a bit of humility. Even even if they've achieved a whole lot, they um, they don't wear it as a badge. Um, they they don't uh, you know even I think of a good friend of mine who's a PhD and quite accomplished in a lot of areas has written some books and you know uh, when we're talking about matters that uh, he's more knowledgeable about, he doesn't uh, kind of you know throw that around. Uh, he engages me humbly and. Um, so there's it, kind of a social meekness, you know, it, it has, uh, it comes from his own, you know, relationship with God. And um, there's uh, several streams that run against that, currents that run against meekness. Uh, you know, the three I use in the book are strong pride, weak pride, and middle pride. Um, so, well, often, often we think of strong pride, we think of, you know, kind of popular figures that we might consider arrogant. You know, uh, Nick Kyrgios in the, te- the tennis world, Draymond Green. You know, in the basketball world, um, you know, maybe there's some actors that we think of, but we, we tend to think of these people, uh, larger than life, uh, <clears throat> and we're slow to think of ourselves. <laughs> uh, you know, but it, it you know, it, it's funny because we, we are quick to judge the people that are, you know, in the limelight, uh, which may in fact show that we carry the same sinister seed of, of pride that runs against the grain of, of humility. Um, <clears throat> So uh, strong pride is, you know, just drawing attention to yourself um, for, for a skill, uh, an attribute, a uh, quality, uh, an accomplishment. Uh, you might do it through social media. You might just do it in the silence of your mind. But your your default posture is, uh, look at me, you know. Um, with weak pride, uh, it, you, you don't really want the, the applause. You're not kind of looking down on everyone and saying, please clap for me. You're beneath everyone. You're uh, you're saying you're looking up, and you're saying approve of me. Mm. Uh, so the weak pride is still self-centric. It's still um, uh, self-centered because it's I, I I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm, I'll never be like him or her. Um, I'll never be that attractive or successful. But it's it's still engrossed in the self. You know, um, how do I appear? And so um, both are pitfalls uh, of pride that drive us away from the blessedness of meekness. But, you know, one today that I find um, perplexing and to being uh, really on the rise is this idea of middle pride. Uh, Middle pride is, you know, the popular parlance is like, you be you. Um, You know, define yourself, uh, be yourself. Uh, people often talk about standing up for my truth. That's my truth. 
Yeah. Um, and I think it is, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of complex, you know, on the one hand, if you think about people who are coming out from stories of sexual abuse or the Me Too movement and they're owning my truth, um, I, there's something to be applauded there. And, and the reason for that is because their truth is corresponding with reality. It's corresponding with the facts that have been hidden, the injustices that have occurred. And so that's, I think that's the good version of my truth. The bad version of my truth or middle pride is um, when it doesn't line up with reality. Uh, <clears throat> when it, um, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's reduced to kind of a preference, a self-expression uh, that we kind of demand everyone respect. And we see this in kind of uh, gender, you know, uh, talking to someone yesterday about uh, their friend who uh, demands to be called they yeah. and uh, the difficulties that they're encountering in their relationship. So there's this kind of a middle pride that this is my truth and you need to call me by this or you need to accept this uh, uh, version of sexuality. And it doesn't line up with 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 the way we're intended to flourish. Um, and it is kind of self self-centered. Um, it is uh, it's kind of saying. What, are I, what I feel, what I desire to be in the moment or sexually, gender, uh, whatever it is, um, that is most important. Um, that takes center stage and you need to respect that. So the, the, it's, it's just this, you know, uh, brazen exaltation of the self and uh, requiring that everyone change their language, uh, change their moral views, and everyone kind of attend to and um, fawn the self. So that's that's the one that's really difficult because it's so widely accepted to to do this, and yet it's 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 incredibly arrogant. Um, it doesn't lead to flourishing, and uh, it's it's not meek. So you know, just kind of deal with some of those things to try and help us get on the table. What are the headwinds as we try to cultivate meekness and be people of humility? Well, which version of pride do you tend to aim to? you know, which, which one is, tends to be more attractive to you. One thing that I wanted to kind of follow up on is, um, you know, you keep referring to, it doesn't lead to flourishing, you know, like if you're using this, this middle pride, um, or, or you're using the kind of, uh, you know, you need, you need to correspond to my version of reality. And, and you said, as you said previously about, um, you know, uh, another point of discussion and it doesn't lead to flourishing. What does that look like? What is, you know, when you say human flourishing or, you know, the, the Beatitudes leading to flourishing, what does that mean for us? What does to flourish entail? I think flourishing is one way to interpret in, uh, the word bless. So that's the beginning of every Beatitude. So if okay. you want to flourish, if you want to experience the shalom and um, joy and contentment of the kingdom of God, the happiness in, in a more robust version of happiness, then these, these things will, this is the way to do it. <laughs> mm. Or in spirit, you know, meekness, uh, hunger and thirsting for righteousness. These are the, these are the things that lead to human flourishing, the contentment, peace, joy. But not just for myself, of course, society. Yeah. So you know, we we all enjoy people in communities that are humble, not arrogant. Um, we we appreciate uh, people who um, are consistent in their character and righteous. We appreciate receiving mercy from others. So you know, I think. The, to the degree that we're cultivating these virtues um, is in, in large part the degree to which we flourish. 
Um, and if we do it not only as individuals, but as communities, as entire churches, instead of taking, uh, you know, the opposite posture uh, in, towards the headlines or to, towards other people we disagree with, we will have a renewing, a, a socially, spiritually renewing effect on our communities and cities and people around us. So um, this all comes from living out the vision, the, the moral, fruitful vision Jesus has here for us. That's good. Um, in chapter 7, you talk about purity, uh, but you have an interesting perspective on, on what you call inner purity. On, on the surface, the idea of inner purity sounds good, but in, in, in your chapter— um, you have kind of a different take on what inner purity means as opposed to something else. So what does inner purity mean in, in your book and what's the alternative? Yeah. Um, purity in the age of, uh, self-expression, kind of talk about inner purity and outer purity. So inner purity kind of picks up on the idea that we were just discussing of, uh, of, of my truth. Um, it, the way that I try to explain it is, um, inner purity is a pure devotion to your own feelings, mm. to your own desires, to your own uh, self self expression. Um, you know, the sociological term is expressive individualism, but the, it's the idea that whatever you feel is supreme is most important. Um, <clears throat> and so, to be pure in in the modern world is to be true to that feeling. It is to be, is to uphold that uh, desire and not to allow any outside authority to uh, challenge it or uh, alter it. So in that sense, uh, inner purity is being true to the authority, not of um, some beatitudes or commandments or even what society thinks in general, but, being true to your your own authority, the authority of yourself. Um, so that's that's the idea of inner purity. An example would be, um, or an example I use in the book is uh, this um, Society for the Acceptance uh, of Bad Acceptance filed a lawsuit against McDonald's because um, this particular individual was. So obese, they couldn't fit in the chairs at McDonald's. And so they felt like they had the right to uh, uh, sue an entire corporation in order to cause them to have chairs that fit their uh, fit their body. Um, I think we need to be very respectful uh, of, of that challenge. You know, that, that challenge walking into a restaurant and there not being a seat that fits you is a, is a socially awkward thing. It's a difficult thing. But to expect an entire company to change its seating structure for you, yeah, um, it's a quite self-centered thing, you know. It's so I kind of play it out, and well, what if what about the elderly who, when I go to McDonald's uh, occasionally, I see you know having coffee together, and there are canes, and they, you know, there's no cane holders for those canes, and those things slide down all the time, and they bang around. It's like, well, what, why don't we uh, honor their demands? <laughs> um, they are free to express their their age and their disability. Uh, and so, so it just becomes uh, ludicrous at, at some point that we all respect the inner self and be its its desires and its expressions. It, it just you know the, when does that end? You know. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the the right to express yourself um, is a kind of purity 
unto the self. That that's the idea I want. Yeah. And what's the alternative to that? Um, the the alternative that we find is uh, is outer purity. So, um, you know, the <clears throat> do your duty, uh, do what's right. The greatest generation um, built a strong economy by doing what's right, not by kind of chasing their um, their passion, their passion vocation. And in so a lot of ways, we we have benefited from uh, that kind of uh, that kind that kind of ethic, um, outer purity. Um, it has, uh, very religious expressions, you know, and we've seen this in the like, quote, purity movement, uh, you know, the eighties and nineties, uh, you know, <clears throat> being, being committing yourself, you know, to, to being sexually pure and, um, you know, that, that's, that's a commandment, you know, that's, you know, that this is the will of God that you maintain your body in sexual Purity. Um, this is the will of God. Your your sanctification. So uh, that's a good thing. But the the trouble with outer purity is that if it's disconnected from the gospel, it becomes um, just uh, just as abusive as perhaps the the inner purity, which demands that everybody you know fall under my authority. The outer purity, um, you know, we're we're measuring one another's um, outer conduct, you know, church attendance, um, sexual purity. And anyone that fails um, is to, is bound to carry great shame, and um, you know um, even social marginalization. Um, you know, I mean, I think of a story when I was in college. It, um, I struggled with sexual purity. I had a roommate who, um, but unbeknownst to me, one day had uh, the director of the college ministry that we were in come over to the house. I walked through the door. He was sitting in there. And uh, they confronted me, and he said, my roommate said to me, I want him out of my house. He is a filthy man. Mm. Uh, expel the immoral brother from among you. Um, you know, th- there was no sense of grace. There was no sense of uh, forgiveness, um, you know. And and so uh, grace and forgiveness are, are critical to cultivating true purity. Um because we all, we all lack it. So, you know, there's the outer religious form. Um, there's an the inner kind of secular form that we've talked about. And both of them drive us away from the kind of purity that Jesus is giving us a vision for. Um, a purity that comes not from looking at our uh, morality or looking at our inner self, but looking at him. Um, we, we, we become what we behold. Um, and so uh, looking at the beauty, uh, the grace, the person of Jesus Christ and uh, repenting and trusting in him over and over. So, yeah, so to try to kind of take apart some, uh, you know, distorted forms of purity in order to get us to this purifying vision of looking at Jesus to be transformed. Yeah. The vision for this um, in um, Our Good Crisis comes from the Beatitudes. I just want to read beginning in, um, this is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jonathan, tracking with that, your last chapter is about persecution. Um, I wonder what's your perspective on that in relation to the West, right? We know persecution is ongoing around the world for our brothers and sisters, active, violent oppression. Uh, do Christians in quote unquote civilized places or in, in the West, in the United States to be specific, do we suffer a kind of persecution here yet? Well, it's hard to think of ourselves as persecuted when we, you know, see a video of uh, Christians lined up in orange jumpsuits, yep. you know, and I mean, it's it's very difficult to apply that category to ourselves when we think about the extreme violent physical persecution of our brothers and sisters um, <clears throat> throughout church history and, you know, uh, across the ocean. However, I do think there is a category for persecution that is non-physical. Um, and I see that here in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when others revile you. Yeah. Um, that's a verbal persecution, not a physical persecution. Um, uh, so there seems to be, I don't think there's a, you know, a taxonomy of persecution in the Beatitudes, but there seems to be in Jesus teaching a breadth of persecution that would apply to uh, things that we experience, where people malign us, people uh, speak against uh, our Christ, against uh, uh, our 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 worldview, um, against the things that we hold. There's there seems to be in the eleven and twelve verse a physical, emotional, and phys, um, physical, emotional, and verbal persecution. So yes, and I think. You know, as, as we continue to experience secularization, we find that um, Christians in particular, um, sometimes for good reasons, are persecuted and sometimes for bad reasons. You know, so we have to be careful about how we think about applying this verse. So I, I think of uh, Joe Biden's son had died and he went to the funeral and there were, um, quote, Christians. Uh, with signs mocking him, mocking his son, um, and saying very rude things about him because of his sexuality. That father was just trying to grieve the death of his son, and these Christians uh, were, were not possessing the, the the virtues of the Beatitudes, but in fact hurling judgment and not even giving him. You know, one of them is blessed are those who mourn. Give the man space to mourn. And so someone throws hot coffee on the crowd and they get, get upset. That's not persecution for righteousness sake. That's persecution for unrighteousness sake. Right? So um, I think we, we have to be careful in how we apply it. Um, you might call that a kind of physical, I guess, persecution. But yeah, you know, it's, um, it's, it's harder and harder to be true to your faith um, in, in the West and in, in America, you know, I, I see this, you know, uh, we're doing a class on evangelism in a secular age. And as I talk with people, it's very hard for them to talk about the uniqueness and exclusivity of Jesus because that is shut down. Um, that is uh, looked down upon. Um, <clears throat> so to, to talk about the, the heart and soul of our faith, uh, what Jesus has uniquely done that no other person has done for the world. 
um, is is seen as you know narrow and bigoted. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we we feel the social effect of it. Uh, we may feel the verbal insults uh, as a result of it, and just the the diminishing acceptance of of the claims of Jesus. And in that sense, um, there is a persecution. I saw a, a tweet just a couple weeks ago. Bob Roberts, who you know travels the world and does a lot of interfaith stuff in uh, many worlds with many religions. He said, you know, I've traveled the world and I've uh, talked to all these religions, Christians in every country, and I I find the hardest place to be a Christian is in America. <laughs> so um, I was surprised on one hand to see that, and yet on the other hand I wasn't because in America there is the kind of secularizing impulse, but there's also this uh, cult of comfort yeah. that we all fall into, you know, of not wanting to do anything that's uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, we've got air-conditioned cars, we've got, you know, uh, remote controls, we've got, you know, all, so so much of our life is is co- conditions us to comfort. So to brave the potential persecution of talking about the uniqueness of Christ becomes increasingly unthinkable and difficult because we live in the lap of luxury, you know. So... Mm. Um, I think uh, that that uh, uh, atmosphere of comfort, the secular secularizing uh, impulse of seeing Christianity as narrow and bigoted, makes it really hard to talk about Christianity and to talk about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So yes, I think I think it, it applies to our our time. As the 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 tension increases, as we sort of continue sliding into. Uh, more and more of of just sort of the the post Christendom post Christian age, uh, Christians need a a gospel vision for what the Lord is doing. Uh, to know that um, Christ's kingdom uh, was at hand, is at hand, uh, can be had because of the grace that uh, comes to us uh, through Jesus Christ, His person and work, His crucifixion, His resurrection, His ascension, even that He's returning again to consummate that very kingdom. And Jonathan's book, Our Good Crisis, can help you with that vision, give you a great, uh, a, a greater sense of tracking with what God is doing in the world through Christ, what God plans to do. If you know, part of the the glory, the beauty of the Beatitudes is also just seeing um, a picture, sort of a, a snapshot, a window into the future world where um, you know all sin and brokenness and injustice is finally vanquished as well. So I really encourage you to get this book. We've been speaking with Jonathan Dodson, pastor of City Life Church in Austin, Texas, founder of Gospel Center Discipleship, and author of this new book from IVP, Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. Pick it up wherever good books are sold. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, brother. Thank you, Jared. As always, dear listener, if you like the podcast, please share us with your friends. Give us a good review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.